Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Bridge. Hey, we are glad that you're here. If you're in person or if you're watching us online, thank you so much for being here, Uh, especially to our online audience. I know many of you may be traveling this weekend. Thanks for tuning in, and we'd love to interact with you a little bit, so make some comments. Uh, We put some numbers up on the screen that you can text to kind of communicate with us. We'd love to interact with you any way that we can. Uh, We are beginning a brand new series this morning on timeless truths. And uh, I don't think uh, over the course of the summer, as we have a number of guests coming in, I don't think we could have a greater guest to help us kick off this series this morning than the gentleman that's with us. Um, A graduate of Biola University and Talbot Theological Seminary, where he now teaches both graduate and undergraduate classes, uh, listed as one of the 100 top apologists, author, co-author, editor of over 25 books and and, uh, Just a a wonderful communicator, has a heart and a passion for a new generation to teach them God's truth. Uh, But above all that, and probably the greatest thing about him is Stephanie. Uh, his, his high school sweetheart that he's been married to for 21 years, three beautiful children. Thank you to Stephanie for that. But uh, it, is a, it is a joy and a privilege to have a, uh, a friend of Southbridge with us. He was with us virtually last year because he couldn't get here uh, amidst pandemic. But Sean, we are glad that you were here with us in person this morning. Let's give a, just a warm Southbridge family welcome to Dr. Sean McDowell. Wow, thank you. I know what you're thinking. When he mentioned I'm in the top 100 apologists, rather than being impressed, your thought was, huh, I didn't know there were 100 apologists. I got this shirt last night hanging out with the students. They gave me the hurricane shirt. Uh, Hamilton, I'm told, is a defensive specialist. I'm not going to pretend that I actually know, but honored to wear the shirt, and it's a thrill to be here with you. Since this is a series called Timeless Truths, figured we'd start with a verse that you know. In fact, I don't even really need to cite it. It's in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am one of the ways, one of the truths, and one possible life. If you want to come to the father or the mother through me, that's cool. Go forth living according to whatever feels right to you. Did Jesus say that? Did he claim to be one way to get to God? No. In fact, Jesus seemed to think that truth is pretty important and that what we believe about truth matters. Do you know there's at least a hundred verses in the New Testament that directly or indirectly make the claim that Jesus is the only way to get to God. Truth matters, doesn't it? I was speaking with a group of students a number of years ago on this topic of truth and a student came up to me afterwards. He goes, Dr. McDowell, you just spent a full session talking about truth. Why does truth even matter? I said, well, do you want the true answer or the false answer? He paused for a minute, smirked and walked away. Why? If you ask why does truth matter, Without realizing it, what are you already assuming matters? Truth. 
We care about truth because we've been made in God's image and we've been placed in God's world and truth is a way we navigate reality. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, he said, with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish, if you can throw it up there for me, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. Paul says people perish for eternity if they don't love truth. But you ever just thought about your life and how many decisions moment by moment are based on what you think is true? You wake up, okay, what day is it? Got to get that right. What time is church? What are the directions to get to church? Like moment by moment, we're basing our lives on what we think is true. But let's be a little bit more explicit. Why does truth matter? Well, for one reason, truth has consequences. Truth has consequences. My uncle is a pastor up in Massachusetts and he told me a story when we were having a conversation some time ago about a distant cousin of mine that I actually never met. This cousin of mine was deaf and he lived up in the woods in Massachusetts and he'd go walking on the train tracks almost every morning. It was just a ritual for him. We got up one morning walking on the train tracks believing that he was safe. Because he believed it was true that he knew what time the train would come. But it never occurred to him. They would change the time. So he's walking on the train track. The train couldn't stop. They gave him a warning, but he couldn't hear it. And actually the train killed my cousin. Large part because he had false information. Now, truth has consequences in the big things and the small things, right? You wake up in the morning and you, need, you got headaches, you need a Tylenol, you grab a wrong bottle that says rat poison, consequences. But not only in the big things and the small things. You're coming up to a stop sign, you don't see the stop sign, there could be consequences. Truth matters because lies have consequences, Hosea, the minor prophet, said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If we don't have truth, it'll destroy our health. It'll destroy a relationship, a family, a church. It'll destroy a nation if we don't care about truth. So truth matters because truth has consequences. Now, there's a second reason why truth matters. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, right where you're at, close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, point the direction you think is north. Keep your eyes closed, point the direction. Everyone's got to vote, point the direction. Now keep your hand pointed, open up your eyes, and look around. <laughs> this might be my favorite scenario right here. Two people pointing literally the opposite direction. Now, obviously, if you're trying to head up to north or Pennsylvania, somewhere up in the northeast, you better know what direction north is. You're going to end up somewhere down in Florida, right? So truth has consequences. But what might you have to help you know what direction north is? A compass or the app on your smartphone, right? You see, truth is a compass for life. Not only does truth negatively help us avoid consequences, but it positively helps us know what choices we should make. You might say it helps us orient our life 
towards that which is right and true and based in reality. Uh, my mom is a boomer, so maybe some of you have heard the phrases where, people, where kids will say, okay, boomer. Well, my mom fits some of the stereotypes in the sense that she has struggled with technology, although she's come a long way. She like follows me on Twitter and she does YouTube sometimes. She's come a long ways. But years ago, my mom got a new email account and decided to set it up herself. One of the first instructions, and you know my mom well, Dave, so you get this. One of the first instructions that came up on the screen said, close all the windows. <laughs> my beloved mother got up from her chair, walked around the house, and closed all the windows in the house. Now she came back, my sister was in high school at the time, when she told my sister, she basically fell on the floor and laughed and cried for an hour. She couldn't believe this happened. Now what's funny about this is when your computer screen says close all the windows, you actually know it doesn't mean the physical windows in the house. It's talking about a window on a computer screen, right? Even the word we use screen could apply to a window. You see, a computer's been designed by somebody very smart to function a certain way. And when we're confused about its design and function, what happens? Embarrassment, you get upset, and frustration. But when we know the truth, what happens? Then we know how something should be used. So just like there's a design for a computer or a smartphone, my smartphone is not a scuba tank, it doesn't make waffles. There's a design for a broom, right? When we know the design and truth of something, we know how it should be used. You see, that's why truth is like a compass for life. But what's interesting in the scriptures, you know the first thing we're told explicitly about God is not that God is holy, not that God is just or righteous or merciful or loving. The Bible starts by saying, in the beginning, God created. The first thing we're told about God is that God is a creator. Because if something's created, there's a truth about it and a purpose for how it's supposed to operate. That's why you look in Genesis, there's a purpose for family, there's a purpose for nations, a purpose for language, there's a purpose for marriage. It's when we know that truth and orient our life to it that we're set free. You see, I, I think one of the biggest lies that this generation is told is that freedom is doing whatever you want to do as long as it feels good and you decide it. Friends, that's not freedom. Freedom is living according to our design. Freedom is orienting our life around truth. Do you see why truth is so important? That's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Lies enslave, truth brings freedom. Jesus is the truth, Satan is the father of lies. So number one, truth helps avoid consequences. But number two is that truth is like a compass for life. Number three, why is truth important? Because believing is not enough. It's not enough to believe something if your beliefs aren't rooted in truth. 
You ever heard somebody say, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. That might be your truth, but it's not my truth. Look, do you know how many times I believed I was six foot ten and in the NBA? I'm only six seven on this stage. <laughs> not even close. Look, I believe there's a million dollars in my wallet over there with all the might that I have. It doesn't matter how much I believe it. Even if I did, my great state of California would take most of it anyways. You know, California just started, it's called Vax for the Win, where our governor is taking, he's literally taking taxpayer money and giving it to people who get vaccinated. I mean, it's crazy. Like, my state is nuts what's happening in California. I'm not saying I'm for vaccines or against it, but it's nuts, right? Nothing's true because you believe it. If you believe you're vaccinated and you're not, you're not vaccinated, right? Nothing's true because we believe it, but because truth has consequences and because truth is what brings freedom, we better know and embrace and follow truth. Now, with that said, thank you. I knew there's at least one Baptist here. <laughs> now, what we haven't done is actually define what we mean by truth. Now, with my students, I teach at Biola University full-time, but I still teach a high school class part-time at a local Christian school. And I will have my students very carefully methodically. It will take a long time to define truth. But we're going to do it rather quickly. Here's the definition. I think you'll find it's intuitive but very helpful if you stop and think about it. What do we mean by truth? Here's what's called the correspondence theory of truth. A statement is true if it matches up with reality. A belief is true. An idea is true if it corresponds to reality. So you have a belief, you have reality, and if it corresponds, you have truth. So if I told you that I drove here from Southern California, it only took me 16 hours because I drove in my new red Lamborghini and you go walking out in the parking lot and you see this, my statement just might be what? Might be true. If you walk outside and you see this, my statement would be what? Be false. Why? Because I described it as red, in reality it's yellow. Now if you walk outside and see what I really drive, which is this, why are you laughing? <laughs> I gave this talk and an eighth grader goes, ah, ha, ha, you drive a Ford. I was like, what do you drive? <laughs> My statement would be really false because it's not even close to a Lamborghini. In fact, here's the way I've done this with my kids. I try to think of ways to teach stuff to my kids is I'll use superheroes. And you'll have an image of Spider-Man, Batman, and Wolverine, but then you have the word. And if you have the correspondence, that is Wolverine, the line between them, the correspondence, that is Batman and that is Spider-Man, you have truth. Truth is when a belief matches up with reality. Is that smoke? No, I'm just kidding. What'd you do when I said that? You turned and you looked. Since there's not smoke back there, don't worry, Dave. My statement was what? It was false. If there actually was, my statement would be true. Isn't this, if you stop and think about it, kind of common sense? You might not have been able to define it carefully like this, but we can't not define truth this way. 
The Bible doesn't give us a definition of truth as correspondence, but the ninth commandment is thou shalt not lie, which is intentionally misrepresenting the truth. Intentionally given a false idea you know doesn't match up with reality. Now look, here's the catch. Everybody uses truth this way in their daily life. You can't avoid it. But when the topic shifts to moral values or religion, many times people will change what they mean by truth. Let me say it again. Everybody uses the correspondence theory of truth in their daily life. But when the topic shifts to ethics, values, and religion, then whether people realize it or not, they will often switch what they even mean by truth. So let's break this down. If I was going to get to bring my wife here next time and we went out for ice cream, what would be the best flavor of ice cream we would need to get while we are here? What's the best flavor? Chocolate, cookie dough. That's it? You have two flavors of ice cream here in Raleigh? Butter pecan? I I actually think I might have heard the correct answer. The correct answer is the best flavor of ice cream is chocolate peanut butter. I'm just saying. Now who says that is true? Let me see your hands. Who says that is false? How can that be true for you but not true for me? How can truth vary for some of us? And the answer is not that I'm wrong good try, that we're talking about something we call subjective. It's personal and private, and it depends upon the beliefs of the individual. So a subjective claim, actually the key word in subjective is subject. If an individual believes something or feels something, it's right for him or her. So when you think of subjective claims, Think of ice cream flavor because ice cream preference is a matter of your subjective preferences and tastes and it can be true for you in one sense but not true for you. Now what if I said chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes? Usually I get an amen. Now, can that be true for you, but not true for me? Notice how this is a different kind of claim, isn't it? We're no longer talking about an internal preference claim. We're talking about the external objective world. You see, objective claims are about the external world independent of what someone believes. So the key word in subjective is subject. The person feeling or having a preference makes it true for him or her. Objective claims aren't based internally on the beliefs of the individual. They're based on the way the world is or the way the world isn't. So if I had a, say I had a big cup of chocolate peanut butter ice cream and I said, this is delicious. Is that really about the ice cream or is it about my experience of the ice cream? Yeah, that's right. That's about my experience of it because you might not find it delicious. But if I said this weighs, say, 20 grams, what's that about? The object, the ice cream. So when you think of objective claims, I only think of insulin 
because insulin actually objectively helps control diabetes. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to throw some statements up on the screen, and I'm going to ask you to participate here with me. If it's a subjective claim, I want you to shout out ice cream. If it's an objective claim, I'm going to ask you to shout out insulin. You guys are sharp. I don't care what you say about this first. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you never said that. So if it's a subjective claim, ice cream. If it's an objective claim, insulin. Now, very quickly, I'm not asking if these claims are true or false. I'm simply asking what kind of claim are they? Okay, so ice cream or insulin? Here we go. Coke tastes better than Pepsi. Ice cream. Ice cream. That's a preference claim. Maybe you don't like Coke or Pepsi. Maybe you like Sprite or tea. That's still a preference claim up to the individual. Okay? Try this one. Diet Coke has fewer calories than regular Coke. Let's, okay, good. Now what are we talking about? We're actually talking about the soda itself and a property internal to it. Not our experience of it. Good. Two plus two equals four. Listen, okay, good. So math is in the realm of objective claims. I've never met a single person who took issue with that, by the way. Okay? Hawaii is the most beautiful vacation spot on earth. Ice cream. Okay, good. We all know it's Southern California. Ah, I'm kidding. I have to make myself believe that given how broken my state is, but I digress. Um, okay. You might say, I like the desert. You might like, you know, somewhere else. That's a matter of preference. Um, okay, how about this one? George Washington was the first president of the United States. Insulin. Okay, good. Now, this isn't a mathematical claim. What kind of claim is this? It's historical. Good. So, it's in the past. You can't see it the way you could allegedly see smoke, but we still know it's dealing with something objectively mind-independent. Okay, good. How about this one? Action movies are more enjoyable than romances. Ice cream. Okay, good. That's a preference. Maybe you go, you know what? I don't like to watch like movies. I read books. Fine. That's a preference claim. Okay. Sean McDowell could bench press 300 pounds. I am not feeling the love. Now, you don't have to raise your hands. But the question is, is this a preference claim? Or is this a claim about an objective reality? Now you hesitate, why? Because you don't know the answer to how many pounds I can bench press. Here's the deal. You don't have to know the answer to that to know whether or not this is an ice cream or insulin claim. Is there an objective truth about how many pounds I can bench press? Yeah, this is not a preference claim this is a claim about objective reality. Now, we could test it if you had a weight bench, bring it out here, throws in some 45s, cut off my sleeves, not my hurricane shirt, of course, and we could see if I could bench press it. And there's either, the answer is either yes or no, and your beliefs won't change that. You see, this is important because there are still objective truths about claims for which we might not have a certain answer. In fact, if I said there's 50 quadrillion, zillion, 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 zillion atoms in the universe, that claim is either true or false. There is a number of atoms in the universe, but we will never know it. 
So just because if we don't know something is true or false, doesn't make it a subjective claim. Okay, so that one is an insulin claim. All right, let's try this one. Earth is the center of the solar system. Insulin, okay, good. Now you also realize that this claim is what? It's false. So you can have a false insulin claim. If I said two plus two equals five, that's still an insulin claim, but it's false. So far you've told me that historical claims are like insulin. Mathematical claims are like insulin. Scientific claims are like insulin. How about this one? Ice cream or insulin, abortion is wrong. Who says ice cream? Who says insulin? Who says after the last election, I will never vote again? No, I'm kidding. Now, there was a little bit of a split in here, right? Is the question of the morality of abortion a matter of preference like ice cream flavor, or is there an objective truth about this question? Now, let me, let me take a step back and think about it this way. This is not a scientific claim, is it? Science may bear on when life begins, but science can't tell us whether something is right or wrong. This is a moral, ethical question. Are moral questions all like ice cream that are matters of preference? Or are moral questions more like insulin in which there's an objective, true answer? I was speaking with a fellow, this is a number of years ago, and we were talking about this topic. He goes, look, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. I said, I am sorry to point out the obvious, but I can't. If you'll notice, I have a little bit of sarcasm. I think sarcasm is the sixth love language. <laughs> My wife disagrees, but I'm working on her. He says, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. As if abortion is a matter of preference. If you don't like chicken, get the fish. If you don't like coffee, get tea. I said to him, I said, hey, so are you against slavery? He looked at me like I was stupid. He said, yes. I said, then if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Are we against slavery because we don't like it? No. We're against it because it's objectively morally wrong to enslave and own and mistreat another human being based on something secondary like skin color. Friends, here's the deal. People will say about moral issues that may be true for you, but not true for me. They'll act as if they're relativists, but nobody's really a relativist. How do I know this? Romans 2 tells us that even people without the law know the law because it's written where? On their hearts. You see, atheists can know right and wrong and atheists can be moral because they still are made in the image of the God that they reject and still live in God's world. So what different belief systems do is they push truth down, but truth is going to pop up. You see, you know what somebody believes about the objectivity of morality, not by their actions, but by their reactions. 
You know what someone believes about morality, not by their actions, but by their reactions. I tell my high school students, I go, look, if someone tells you there's no such thing as right and wrong, cut in front of them in line. Or are they going to say, that's not fair. I got here first. I was sharing this example overseas and somebody said, well, that example doesn't work here because in our culture, we revere the elderly and the elderly are supposed to cut in line. I said, okay, so in your culture, if a young person cuts in line in front of the elderly, is that wrong? They said, yes. I said, that's my point. There are objective standards of fairness. They might apply differently, but we all know there's a sense of right and wrong and fairness. That's what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. So the moment somebody tells you there's no such thing as right and wrong, that person will contradict themselves moments later. Look, if morality is like ice cream, you have no right to condemn racism. If morality is like ice cream, you have no right to condemn any sex abuse whatsoever. If morality is like ice cream, you have no right to condemn terrorism. Because that's somebody's preference. But we all know certain things are right and certain things are wrong because it's written on our hearts. A number of years ago, I, uh, some of my, when I was teaching high school full-time at a Christian school, some of my students came in to me. They go, Dr. McDowell, at the public school like across town, like two miles away, they had this free-thinking atheist meeting and a hundred plus students showed up to hear about this. They're like, what do we do? I said, great question. Let's figure it out. Well, we came with this idea that three of my students would challenge three of their students to a public debate on the existence of God, the historical Jesus, and morality. It was awesome. The church, probably about this size, was packed. People were along the walls watching it. It was really one of the coolest things I did in student ministry. And one of the issues was related to God and morality. So one of my students who I trained got up there and she said, look, we all know there's right and wrong. All of us do. That's because there's an objective moral law. And the best explanation is there's a moral law giver. Morality points towards God. Their student gets up there and says, look, there is no objective right and wrong. It's all a matter of preference. You live according to your beliefs. We live according to ours. But you can't judge anybody else as being wrong. And then he sits down. But then when it was time for the closing speech, he gets up front. And this student who had just said there's no such thing as objective right and wrong uses the opportunity of being at a podium in a church. And he goes, you Christians are a bunch of bigots homophobic, you're intolerant, and you're hateful, shame on you, and he sits down. Do you see the irony? There's no objective standard of right and wrong, but you hateful, intolerant, immoral Christians should have known differently, shame on you. He's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Now I couldn't, I was actually moderating, I couldn't point this out to my students, why? Because the other students would have said, that's not fair, that's not right, you're the moderator, you shouldn't step in because they actually believe there's such a thing as right and wrong. We know this. So what is the question of abortion, by the way? Look, I shared this with the students last night. Imagine some of you after this service, you go home and you see some unfinished dishes, so you're doing the dishes. Now for some of you, this takes a lot of imagination. Do the dishes, you have a younger brother, sister, or grandkid come in and they say, Mommy, Daddy, Poppy, Grandma, can I kill this? 
Now, before you say yes or no, what question would you ask back? What is it? Turn around, it's a cockroach. You'd be like, yeah, go ahead. Turn around, it's a little kitten. You'd be like, no, that's kind of messed up. You want to hurt a kitten. Turn around and the five-year-old's like, oh, I pulled this infant out of a carriage. Can I kill this? You'd be like, whoa, no, that's a human being. What's the difference between how you treat a cockroach and a human being? And the answer is what it is. How we treat something depends upon what it is. So the question of abortion, either the unborn is human or it's not human. Either it's okay to take innocent life or it's not. This is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of objective truth. By the way, if there's no such, if morality is like ice cream, what would that do to the gospel? There'd be no reason for Jesus to die. Ice cream or insulin? Jesus was a carpenter. Insulin. Jesus died on the cross in 8030. Some argue 29, some argue 33, but it's an insulin claim. Jesus resurrected as proof he is divine. Insulin. Look, now good, you got it. Now, by the way, that's a historical claim about the resurrection. Proof he's divine is a religious claim, isn't it? It's a religious claim. Now, let me state this very clear to make sure we're on the same page. Nobody dies and goes to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. You realize that, right? Nobody dies and goes to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. People die and go to the horrible place the Bible describes as hell because of a rebellion against their creator, because of a moral virus the Bible calls sin. And to say that Buddha or Krishna or Mohammed can forgive your sins is like saying chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes. It doesn't work in the objective real world. Jesus is the only way to God because Jesus is the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. God is holy and sin separates us from God. Jesus was the sinless God-man who paid the price that we couldn't pay and offers us free salvation if we'll believe. If your car runs out of gas, it does no good to rotate the tires, get new spark plugs, and even drop a ton of money on a new transmission. Got to identify the problem and fix it. The problem is sin, and Jesus uniquely fixed sin. But what sets Christianity apart is it's not just based on feelings. It's based on claims of objective truth. See, if you're there with Thomas and Thomas goes, I will not believe unless I can see and touch the spear wounds. You could have reached your spear wounds into the side of, your hands into the side of Jesus and felt the wounds yourself. If you were at the empty tomb, you could have ducked your head in, walked inside, smelled the musty scent of an empty tomb and seen the linen cloth of Jesus laying there. If you're at the cross, you could have reached out and touched the cross, maybe got a splinter in your hand and felt the trickle of warm blood coming down. So you can believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus, but the claims of Jesus cannot be true for you 
but not true for you. They cannot be my truth, but not your truth. They are true or false. We believe it or we don't. That's why Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now there's a number of objections I won't have time to go into. Like some people will say there is no truth, which is silly because if someone says there is no truth, they think it's true that there is no truth. Some say, well, sincerity is more important than truth. The problem is you can be sincerely wrong and you can be insincerely right. Sincerity is irrelevant to whether something is true or not. Another thing people say, isn't it arrogant to think you are right? Look, you can be arrogant and right, arrogant and wrong, humble and right, humble and wrong. Don't confuse somebody's attitude with whether their beliefs are right or not. Now, there is a connection with knowing truth by humbling ourselves, isn't there? But let us not confuse attitude with truth. Perhaps the biggest one we hear today is, but it feels true to me. As long as something feels right, you have no right to judge somebody else. I'm going to show you a controversial video, but I think it's going to help because you'll remember about two or three years ago, there were these bathroom bill debates in your state and especially up in Washington. And uh, part of the question was related to the issue of transgender. Well, a friend of mine went onto a university campus in Washington. I want you to watch very closely. All he does is ask questions. All he does is ask questions, seeing how far people will take the idea that a man can become a woman and vice versa to other issues. It's brilliant. Take a look. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think. Uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether you're sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'd be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean... I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? 
Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason you need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were you six can, foot you five or Chinese right or a woman. Cut. You can cut the video. Isn't that incredible? Notice what he did. He didn't make a single statement. Remember, Jesus told stories and he asked questions. So the idea that a biological male can be a woman basically says biology doesn't matter. Objective truth doesn't matter. So if that's the case, then couldn't he be seven? Couldn't he be Chinese? And couldn't he be six foot five? So he took the reasoning and drew it out and asked how far could it go? So if biology doesn't matter when it comes to sex, why does it matter when it comes to age? Why does it matter when it comes to race? And why does it matter when it comes to height? You see what he was doing is some of this ideology is pushing the beach ball underwater, but truth bubbles to the surface. Friends, we all know that truth matters. Our job is to help clear away some of these faulty lies by just loving people, being in conversation with people so they can know the truth that sets them free. That's why I love this series about timeless truths because that's why we're here. But it's also why Jesus did not say he's one of the ways, but he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. Amen. Now, as far as the resource that may help, I had a chance to be a general editor for something called the Apologetic Study Bible for Students. It's filled with notes and stories. And we got the top 140 questions students were asking about other religions, issues of sexuality, ethics, culture, one-page responses. So I've had a ton of parents and grandparents tell me they're like, one night a week at the dinner table, we'll bring this out, we'll read it, and we'll just talk about it. Because so much of beliefs are passed through relationships. And it has one of my favorite questions in here that's become very prominent today. If God made everything, why is it wrong to smoke pot? You want to know the answer? Don't. You're, you're going to have to pick up a copy. 
Then the book back there called Chasing Love, which I talked about with the students last night, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. My dad read, he's like, don't tell people it's just for students. He's like, son, this actually really helped me understand. It's like, let's clear away faulty lies. So a lot of what I talked about with truth is at the beginning to help students understand freedom, truth, and love, God's design for sex, marriage, and singleness. And then in the end, I talk about pornography, sex abuse, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and the whole idea is to be a tool for parents. The first book I wrote, I made it 10 chapters because that's what it felt like I was supposed to do, but I wasn't a parent. When I went to write this primarily for my three kids, I was like, wait a minute, how could I organize this that this would be helpful for me? So I've given parents the one-month challenge. Each chapter is like three, four, five pages. Take one month, read it, and talk about it with your kids, probably 12 and up. And when you're done, if you have to re reward your kids in some fashion, I told my daughter, I was like, if you read this book and we go out for coffee and talk about it for an hour, I'll buy you a pair of shoes. She goes, dad, there's an outlet down the street. I could get two for the price of one. Is that okay? I was like, you could have three for the price of one. So she read it. And my daughter and I went out to coffee and for an hour, hour and a half, we talked about all these issues. That's how you pass on faith conversationally to this generation. So if those are a resource, fantastic. I'm going to sneak to the back. I'd love to say hi, answer a question, hear why you love the hurricanes. I've heard a lot of stories. Big game today, I understand. Or sign a book if that's helpful. But thank you for having me. Thanks for seeing this, Pastor Dave. And God bless your important series on timeless truths. Thank you. Thank you.